Well, my name is Pastor Jonathan, and it is so good to see all of you this morning. I am so grateful that you have made it a priority to worship in the Lord's house this morning. I want you to know that you are welcome here this morning, and I am grateful that you are here. Uh, whether it's your first time here and you're a first-time visitor, or uh, whether you've been in the doors for a really long time, longer than I have been, I want you to know that you are welcome, and I am uh, so grateful that you have joined us today. Now, I grew up in Mississippi, as many of you know, and when my brother and I were growing up, one of our favorite things to do in the summers was to go canoeing. Uh, Mississippi has a lot of beautiful creeks and rivers, and so we love to spend all day long in the summers uh, just canoeing down the rivers and finding a sandbar, and then we eat our lunch and we go swimming in a, in a deep hole, and then we'd hop back on the canoe and we canoe for the rest of the day, and this was a different day. Uh, we had no cell phones and we had no smartwatches, and when we left the house, we were just gone for the day, and when we got home is when we got home, and uh, my parents, uh, it must be a testimony to their prayer life, they must have had an incredibly strong prayer life to allow my brother and I to go on all-day uh, trips like that with no cell phones or communication. And one time, my brother was able to save up enough money uh, to buy our own boat, and we had grand adventures for this boat. It was nothing special. It, it was a, G, a green John boat. I don't know if they call that in, this in Texas, but we called them John boats, a little flat-bottom green boat. Uh, some people put trolling motors on them or engines on the back of them, but we saved up some money and uh, talked an aunt into selling us that boat for really cheap. And so on its maiden voyage, we decided that we were going to take it down a river, uh, that was near our house. And we didn't have Google Maps and we didn't have anyone to talk to about it. We just saw that river and we thought it would be amazing. And so we had these grand plans of taking this boat down this river. So before we left, I grabbed some of my father's very expensive fishing poles without asking him. I grabbed his entire tackle box and then also grabbed some of his really nice uh, fillet knives that he had. And I thought it was going to be amazing. And maybe I don't know what I was thinking as 11 and 12 year old. Maybe I thought that we were going to build a fire on the sandbar and cook fish. I have no idea. But the point is, I took all of my dad's stuff without asking for us to go on this trip. Now, we had been headed down the river for just a few moments when we noticed that the water was picking up and it was moving quite rapidly. And uh, this was nothing unusual to us. When we went canoeing, we went down rapids and occasionally we went down a waterfall that was one or two foot high. And it was not a big deal when you're in a canoe or in a kayak. We had done that before, but we had never done this going down in a flat bottom boat. And what happened next was a matter of commotion and confusion uh, that I will never forget. Uh, we found out that we were not just headed for some rapids, but we were actually headed for a pretty sizable waterfall uh, that when I was 11 or 12 was huge, but it was like six or seven foot tall. And in an attempt to try to get the boat out as quickly as we could and all of the commotion, we ended up turning the boat sideways just as we went over the edge of that waterfall. And as you can imagine, all of the belongings in our boat sunk to the bottom of that hole right where the waterfall was coming down. And so all of my dad's expensive fishing gear and his entire tackle box and all of his fillet knives were about 40 foot deep down in the water that there was no way I could dive down and get them. And I had some scratches on me and the boat had some dents and dings and some rocks that had hit as we were going over the edge there. But none of that pain compared to the lump that I had in my throat, knowing that I was going to have to tell my dad that all of his expensive fishing poles and his entire tackle box was at the bottom of a river. So later that night, 
I had to go to my dad and I had, con- had to confess what I had done. And to my surprise, he forgave me. He was really upset that I had not asked, if you can imagine. And he was really upset that all of his belongings were gone, but he forgave me. And he was grateful that we had not been harmed any further than we had and a really unwise thing that we had done at a young age. And see, if I had chosen to not confess that to my dad, imagine what had happened the next time that he decided he was going to go fishing and he went in the garage and started looking for his fishing poles and they were nowhere to be found and he found out that I had concealed what I had done. Today, through the book of Esther, we're going to see two stories of people who have kept secrets. One who confesses it and one who conceals it. And we'll, dis- we'll discover that God desires that we confess our sin and not continue or conceal it. Now, we've been in the book of Esther for eight weeks now, and we have just two sermons left in this book after today. And this book has been an amazing story that we have seen the sovereignty of God and God working all things out throughout this entire story. But our story is not done yet. And last week, everything in our story changed. We saw the great hinge point of the book of Esther in chapter 6, verse 1. And on that night, on that great hinge point of God's sovereignty, everything changed when, the, when God gave King Ahasuerus a case of insomnia and he could not sleep. And from that point on, it's like the entire painting was flipped upside down. And we begin to see everything that God has been up to throughout this entire story. And see, the king, King Ahasuerus, was made aware that Mordecai the Jew, uh, back in chapter 2, had saved his life with no reward. So in a great miscommunication that we saw in chapter 6, the villain of our story, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, he tells the king how the man whom the king delights to honor should be honored but only for Haman to find out that the king wasn't talking about him. The king was talking about Mordecai, the man that Haman had made plans to murder that morning. And so in this great reversal of our story in chapter 6, we saw Haman, who was planning on murdering Mordecai in the morning, is now parading Mordecai around in royal robes on the royal horse, and he's commanding others to bow down to Mordecai and give Mordecai honor. It is a great reversal. Mordecai, who would not bow down to Haman, now Haman is commanding everyone to bow down and give honor and respect to Mordecai. So then our story ended last week as we saw Haman run home to his family and his friends for a moment. And then a great reversal again, we saw at the end of chapter 6 that Haman's family and friends told him, Hey, don't you know who his God is? Like, Don't you know who the God of the Jews are? Surely you'll fall before him. His God is all-powerful and almighty. And then we see Haman rushed off to go to the second feast that Queen Esther has invited him to. And our story left with this great cliffhanger last week of what's going to happen at this second feast? And will this great reversal that began in chapter 6, verse 1 continue? And today we get answers to all of those questions. Last week through Esther 6, we saw that God is in control and that God cares for his children. Today, let's continue in Esther chapter 7, see what happens next in our story. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the small book of Esther. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, that is okay. Uh, We have one that should be in the seat in front of you. And you can take it out and you can use it and you can find our passage today on page 384. And let's continue reading in Esther chapter 7. We'll actually back up one verse. We'll read 614 through 7-2. Let's read that now. 
It says this in Esther chapter 6, verse 14. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So we saw last week in verse 14 of chapter 6, that while Haman was still talking to his squad, the king's eunuchs arrived to snap him, snap him back into reality. They're like, hey, yes, we know that you've been humiliated and you're trying to hide out, but you still have to go out into the city because you've been invited to the second feast and it's time to go now. And think about it, in a 24-hour period, Haman had feasted with the king and the queen, and then he had been bragging with his family and friends about his wealth and his power, and he had made plans to get rid of the thorn in his side, which is Mordecai, the man who went and bowed down to him. And then without warning, Haman is taken from his plans, and he's delivered to God's plans, and he's forced to honor the man that he desired to murder. And it's been a whirlwind of a day for Haman. So Haman heads to the feast that Queen Esther had prepared, possibly hoping for some sense of normalcy. And I can imagine on the way there, the laughs and the ridicule he received along the way, because surely he's the talk of the town. Like, surely this has made its way around the city. And, you know, it's, it's the talk in the old, with the old men in the coffee shop. Like, they hadn't had this much to talk about since Queen Vashti was banished from the kingdom. And now here comes Haman, who has had to bow down and parade around his enemy, who went and bowed down to him. And then we see in verse 1, I can imagine the king at this point in chapter 7, verse 1, he's living in obliviousness. I mean, life is good for the king right now. He's remembered that the townspeople have been about saving his life. Even this Jewish man at his gate, Mordecai, has been about saving his life. And then he's got a faithful number two, he thinks, Haman, who's helped him figure out how to honor the man who saved his life. And now for a second day in the row, his extremely beautiful bride, Queen Esther, has prepared a feast in his honor. I mean, for the king in this moment, life is good and things are looking great. So after they finish their feast in verse 2, in their meal of luxury, the king for the third time in a 24-hour period asked Queen Esther, Hey, what is your request? And he assures her, I will be generous with you. And he assures her her request will be fulfilled even before she is asked it. And this is decision time for Queen Esther. Now is the moment of truth. Will she shrink back in fear, asking for the king to spare the lives of her people? Or will she boldly ask the king her request? Remember, Queen Esther's request will also reveal a secret that she's been keeping for five years now from the king that she is a Jew. She's told no one this, and only Mordecai, her uncle, knows this. How will the king respond to finding out that he's been married to a little Jewish girl? How will he respond to this revelation? Let's continue reading in verses 3 through 6 to see what happens next in our story. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, 
to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Queen Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And notice this. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now we see in verse 3, now's the moment. And notice Esther doesn't invite the king or Haman to another feast. But she recognizes this is the moment. And so she speaks very clearly in this moment. This moment could be the end of her life if the king finds out that she's been keeping this secret from her. And so Esther is just stepping out in faith and praying and trusting that God shows up and shows out on her behalf. So Esther carefully words her request. And instead of coming right out and accusing the king of of him being the one or blurting out Haman's name directly, she begins by making it clear that she is depending on the king for her life. She's depending upon the king's favor for her life. And she wasn't trying to tell him what to do, but she is pleading for her and her people's lives. And then she delivers this bombshell request. Let my life be granted to me and my people, for we have been sold. And then she uses this very language that we see back in 3.13 from Haman's edict that he has put out. And she says, we have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. So Esther in this moment is very clearly identifying herself as a Jew. She is confessing her secret before the king. Further, Esther says, hey, if we had just been sold as slaves, I wouldn't even be wasting your time in this moment. But yet we've been sold into murder and I just can't ignore this. And at this moment, I can imagine Haman. Like he doesn't know she's a Jew, right? So this is news to him. And I can imagine in this moment, Haman has that lump in his throat, feeling where the blood starts rushing to your head and you realize what is happening. Haman's already beginning to connect the dots. That the people that he has hated, the people that he has manipulated the king into issuing a decree to kill includes the king's bride, Queen Esther. I can imagine Haman begins to reflect and he's like, oh, this is why I'm here. Like, this is why she invited me. Like, maybe it's not because I'm so awesome that I've been invited to this. And maybe even Haman begins to think back to his friend and family's words from 613. And he's like, do you know who their God is? His wife's words. And he's like, maybe I should have listened to my wife. You know, like, she maybe she knew what she was talking about. That maybe I won't overcome their God. Like, what a turn of events. After 6-1, everything has radically changed. And then we see in verse 5 that the king, well, he's not as bright as Haman. He hasn't put two and two together yet. And he is livid. He's like, who is he? Who is this man? Like, tell me, show him to me, and I'll take care of it. And you can almost imagine the king, like, in sort of like an Aladdin way, with like smoke coming out of his ears, and he is livid. And he's like, who dare come after my queen? See, Esther wisely has presented this in a way of where she's not accusing the king and she's not attacking the king. And she wasn't also requesting this just for the Jewish people, but she was linking her life with the Jewish people so she could capture the emotions and the favor and the attention of the king by requesting for her life to be spared. 
So in verse 6, we see that Esther reveals the true character of Haman. Finally, like this is the moment we've been waiting for. The kings are going to find Haman out. So Esther, in this moment, she has an opportunity to be very clearly and speak very wisely with her words, and she takes it. She could have said, like when the king says, who is this man? She could have said, well, it's you. Like, you signed this edict. Like, you gave your signet ring uh, to your second man in charge, Haman. Like, it's you. Uh, This moment is very similar to an interaction that we see between Nathan and King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And in this moment of confrontation, Nathan looks to King David and he says, you are the man. But Esther doesn't do that in this case because she's displaying wisdom in this moment because she knows she's standing before a very insecure and a prideful and a self-boasting king. And instead, she points out like the creator of this plan, Haman. And he just so happens to be standing Next to me, the wicked enemy, the king, or the wicked enemy of the Jews. We don't have to imagine Haman's reaction. We see our text tells us that he was terrified before the king and the queen. And see, things have not gone well for Haman uh, since that night that God kept the king awake. And now, in this moment, Haman has also just learned in this moment that the queen is a Jew. Uh, But Esther, very wisely, she doesn't let on that Haman's just now finding this out. And so this leads to the king's imagination. And the king may be wondering in this moment, like, well, was Haman's plot to kill the Jews so he could kill my queen? Or was Haman, like, involved in this conspiracy that Mordecai had uncovered? Like, who is Haman against? Is he against me? And so he begins to put all of this together. And just think about this. Earlier that day... King Ahasuerus had discovered that Mordecai, a Jew, had saved his life and selflessly chosen to save his life. So now the king of this moment, he's like, you know, should I kill the Jews when they are the ones who are my friends and those who are the ones who are, have been saving my life? So now we can begin to possibly see why Esther was led to not ask her request the first two times. Because God was working all these things out in his perfect timing, in his perfect plan, to allow a sleepless Ahasuerus to learn how a Jew had saved his life and deserved to be honored. And this quite possibly could have brought the thought to King Ahasuerus' mind, like, how can I kill this man who has saved my life? God was working all things out for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. So how will the king respond to this revealed information that we've seen here? Let's continue reading in verses 7 through 10. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and he went into the palace garden. But Haman, well, Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing in Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, yes, let's hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king abated. So we see in verse 7 that the king, when he understands this, man, he is 
livid. He literally stands up from the place that they are feasting and he leaves his wine and he goes into the garden. And the narrator leaves us for to imagine why the king leaves and doesn't take action in that moment. But from what we've come to know about the king through this story, uh, we have found out that he's a man of indecision and a man who always takes advice from those around him because he has a hard time making decisions. So maybe he leaves because he has no idea what to do. Like, he's just mad. Should he be mad at his wife, Queen Esther, for hiding the fact that she's a Jew? Or should he be mad at Haman because uh, he is trying to kill the Jews? Perhaps in this moment, he's even angry at them both. But a Jew has saved his life and his wife is beautiful and it took years to find her. Perhaps he thinks, I don't want to go through all of that again. Or perhaps he goes out to the garden to receive advice from someone We know that Queen Esther had favor from everyone that she met. We see that back in 2.15. So surely no one wanted to see Queen Esther's life ended, but surely there were many who uh, did not care for Haman, the prideful and arrogant Haman. Whatever the reason for the king's departure, we know that he departed and he's going to return in a few moments from the palace garden. But notice what Haman did when the king rose from his wrath and left the feast. Haman was like, nope, that guy is angry And I don't want to be around him. Like, I'm not following that guy because nothing good is going to come from that. So instead, he does what? He stays back to beg for his life from the queen. I mean, what irony is there in this moment? Haman is falling down on his knees, begging for his life from a Jew. But think about it in this moment. Queen Esther doesn't really know her fate either. This scene is all about who gets life and who does not. Both Esther and Haman are not in charge of whether they receive life. They're both asking someone for their life, pleading for their lives. And Esther had confessed a secret that she'd held from the king, and she asked for the life of her people. But notice, Haman never confesses anything. He just conceals his pride and conceals all of that, and he just begs for his life. But he's begging without confessing, and also he's begging from Esther, who's not really in charge of giving him life. Like he's sort of begging from the wrong source because Esther's not in charge of whether he lives or dies. This entire scene is filled with a lot of irony. Like think about just how a few chapters ago about how this whole conflict began. It began between Haman and the Jewish people. It began with Mordecai the Jew refusing to bow down to Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And now in this scene, Haman is falling down before a Jew and no less a Jewish woman at that whom he has unknowingly condemned to death to plead for his life. I mean, what irony is there in that? One commentator put this in an incredibly way uh, that I really like. He said this, Haman, the arrogant bully, became in the face of disaster a whining coward. And now with the anger of the king against him, Haman's true character was revealed. He was not a giant, but rather a small man, only full of pride and hot air. And I really like the way that this commentator worded this. He said, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Haman's life back together again. (laughs) See, everything has changed since 6-1, that sleepless night in Susa. Haman, who had been furious that a Jewish man wouldn't bow down to him, is now prostrate, laying before a Jewish woman, begging for his life. Just a side note, observation. Remember the darkness back in chapter 2 when Esther was taken. 
She was powerless before the men in her life. She was just a byproduct of the darkness and the sinfulness that surrounded her. And with God turning everything upside down, we now see that the two most powerful men in the kingdom are now concerned by her. One is begging her for his life, and the other is seeking to protect her life. How the tables have turned. Everything has been flipped upside down. Oh, Christian, hear me. We may have some really dark days right now, but God is working things out for our good. And when we're concerned with the glory of God, don't be surprised when those who are taking advantage of you today are those begging at your feet and seeking to protect you tomorrow. Because when God is in control, he can turn everything upside down from what we know it is right now. And we know God is in control and he's working all things out for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. We see in verse 8, we see this. Haman in this moment commits one final fatal flaw. He stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. But in his haste to beg, he seemingly forgot that in Persian law, it banned a male who was not a eunuch from being left alone with any of the king's harem, especially the queen. Even in the presence of the king, all males had to stay seven steps away from all of the females in the king's harem. And Haman, in his attempt to beg for his life, had instead sealed his fate. And when the king returns from the garden, he finds Haman falling on the couch where Esther is begging for his life. And the king is given precisely the excuse that he needed in this moment to have Haman killed without going back on his word. So he said, well, Haman even assault the queen in my own house and in my own presence. Now, certainly we're not to imagine in this moment that Haman was actually assaulting the queen. But his proximity to her at this moment was enough for immediate execution. And so Haman's head is once again covered for the second time in a day. But this time he's led off to his execution. And we see in verse 9, one of the king's eunuchs. And I like to imagine, you know, in a story or in a movie, like this is the guy that's been rooting for Queen Esther all along, right? And he, it's like he's waiting for this moment to speak up. And finally, this eunuch speaks up and he's like, oh, by the way, king... <laughs> Haman had some gallows built just this morning like to, to kill the man who saved your life. And by the way, they're available at his house should you want to use them. And they're so tall that everyone in the city will be able to see what is happening. And the king, who we know has a hard time making decisions, he's almost like, yes, let's do that. And so he goes along with these plans. And what a great irony is there displayed in this story. All that begins with the sleepless night in Susa. Since then, nothing has been the same. And God, who caused the king to not be able to sleep, has now flipped everything upside down. And the gallows that Mordecai built to murder, or that, sorry, the gallows that Haman built to murder Mordecai, that's a tongue twister, to be hung from this morning will now be used for the one who had them built. And the plans that Haman made now leads to his death. See, what Haman had sowed, he now reaps. And we see in verse 10, the end of our story, Haman meets his fate and he dies and he's speared and then he's hung like an ornament for all to see. See, Haman had built these really tall gallows so that everyone would be able to see that nobody messes with Haman. But once God flips everything upside down, they now see that no one messes with the God of Mordecai. But notice this. 
Haman had built his life around his pride and his prestige and his power and his wealth. And in the end, what did he have to show for it? There was no 21-gun salute. There was no royal mourning. There was no burial in a golden casket. All of Haman's wealth and his glory couldn't rescue him from death, nor could he take any of it with him. Haman had boasted in his riches and his powers, and Mordecai and Esther had boasted in God. But Haman's riches and power had not saved him, but yet Mordecai and Esther's God had saved them. Notice what the king does at the end of this chapter. His wrath abated. It dissipated and disappeared. That's what we hear weatherman say about rain clouds in Odessa. They dissipate and they disappear when they come around us. So for the king, his wrath was dissipated and disappeared. That was it. The threat was removed from his queen. And it's almost like he's like, okay, now that that's taken care of, what are we going to eat for supper? Except for Esther, this was far from over. Even though Haman had been dealt with, his edict was still a threat to her people, to the Jews. Esther may be safe within the walls of the palace right now, but what about God's people in his entire empire? How is God going to rescue his people? We've already seen that he's flipped everything upside down, but how is God going to rescue all of the Jews? Well, that's next week. But for today, what can we observe from this story that we can apply to our own lives? I have three observations for us today. First observation is this, taking a risk to do the right thing matters. Esther in our story today found herself in a very difficult situation. It was a make or break moment. And when the king asked her, hey, what is your wish for the third and final time? She could have chickened out or she could have walked back in fear. But instead, she took a great risk in doing the right thing. See, taking risks to do the right thing matters. In all of our lives, we're placed in situations over and over where we have the opportunity to do the right thing or we have the opportunity to do the wrong thing. And most often in our lives, doing the right thing is very difficult and is very hard. But Galatians 6 tells us to not grow weary in doing what is right. 1 Peter 5 tells us to resist the devil and stand firm in our faith, knowing that we're not alone. But all over the world, there are believers risking it all to do the right thing for the Lord. Well, what is the right thing? Peter calls it doing good in his letters. Paul calls it fighting the good fight. But ultimately, the right thing in all situations is to give God glory. To make decisions that celebrate, to not make decisions that celebrate or satisfy our sin, but to make decisions that proclaim with our lives that Jesus is Lord. So what does this look like? Well, if you're in elementary school or middle school, it may look like, Treating others around you the way that you want to be treated. And not joining in on picking on others when people in your class are doing that. But doing the right thing and risking it all to do the right thing. Not joining in. If you're in high school, it may look like guarding your tongue, guarding your speech, or guarding your behaviors, how you behave, or guarding your habits, having habits that declare that Jesus is Lord with your life. And if we're adults, it looks like doing all of those things, right? Compounded with teaching those younger than us to do the same. So Christians, let's take a risk to do the right thing. The risk is what others may think about us, but the reward is that our lives declare that Jesus is Lord. So the truth is this, Christians. Taking a risk to do the right thing matters. And let's risk it all to make much of Jesus. Our second observation is this. There's two ways to deal with sin. 
We can confess it or we can conceal it. And in our story today, we saw that Esther had a decision and her, de- her decision included a confession that she had been a Jew and she had been hiding this from the king for the past five years along with everyone else in the kingdom. And this was a scary thing to confess because she didn't know how the king was going to respond. Haman also had something to confess, but he had been dealing with the kings and half-truth and that his pride had gotten the better of him and that he had made plans to murder Mordecai, whom the king honored earlier that day. But yet Haman chose to conceal this instead of confessing it. In all of our lives, we have secrets just like Esther did. We have secret sin in our lives that only we know. Sins on things that we have thought or sins of anger that we've hidden in our hearts or maybe even sins that we have thought that we've gotten away with because nobody else knows it. But our secret sins are not secrets from God. God knows all the wrong that we have ever done. Proverbs 15.3 tells us that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere and they're keeping watch on the wicked and on the good. Hear me, God knows your sins. So we all have a choice. We can humble ourselves and confess our sins to the Lord and ask Him to forgive us. Or we can pretend that we are concealing our sins from the Lord even though He already knows them all. Maybe in our lives there are even sins that we need to confess to someone around us, such as like, hey, I'm struggling with this, and I need you to help me fight my sin. I need to do this together to keep me accountable for not doing these things or to fight these behaviors or to hold me accountable for these sins that keep me from keeping my eyes on Jesus. Or maybe there's sins such as hatred in your heart towards another and a relationship that has been ruined or wounded, and you need to swallow your pride and be humble and go ask for their forgiveness. See, Haman in our story found out that concealing his sin did nothing but seal his death. For us today, we best be about confessing our sins before they lead to our destruction as well. Destruction of our relationships with others or destruction of our relationship with the Lord. Christian today, hear me when I say this. Let's throw off everything that hinders us. Laying aside every weight and sin which keeps us from running toward Jesus. And let's run with endurance the race that has been set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So when sin tries to weigh us down from running after Jesus, we say, get this off of me because my eyes are on Jesus and they're fixed on him and I want to run towards him. So we confess our sin instead of carrying it with us and concealing it. Confess your sin and don't let it be the destruction of you chasing after your Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is this, Christian, there's two ways that we can deal with our sin. We can confess it or we can conceal it. Let's confess our sins and fix our eyes on Jesus. Our last observation is this. God's judgment day is coming. And our only hope is Christ alone. In our story today, Esther had an identity with God's people. And Haman had an identity against God's people. And Esther had a secret and she confessed it and God blessed it. And Haman concealed his sin and it led to his death. And just as judgment and wrath came for Haman in our story, today there is also judgment and wrath coming for us all. And throughout the Bible, we see that there is a day of judgment coming, a day when all humans will give an account for their lives and they'll either face the just wrath of God, as we see in Romans 1, or they will have received the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that we see accomplished on the cross. 
And in our story, we see that Haman eventually bowed down, but he bowed down to the wrong person. And he had bowed down for far too long to his wealth and to his pride. And in the end, he bowed down to the queen, but he never repented. He never turned from his evil ways. And it was too late for Haman, and it led to his destruction. And while it was too late for Haman, in this moment, it's not too late for you and I to turn from our sinful ways and our evil ways. But first, we have to recognize that we have evil and sinful ways. How do we do that? How do we realize that we have evil and sinful ways? It's what we measure ourselves against. Not the person next to us. Not the person who does really bad things. But against a God who is holy. See, there is a God and He is perfect. He's never done anything wrong. Nor can He do anything wrong. He created everything that we can see and we can touch and we feel. And He is holy. He is separate and He is like none other and none other will ever be like Him. But we also know this truth that every single one of us have done something wrong. Every human is sinful. We've all done something against God's law. We've lied or we've stolen or we've cheated or we've lusted. We've done something that makes us sinful. And this creates a problem because our sinfulness separates us from the holiness of God. And we will be separated for all of eternity. But we also know this truth that God loves us so much that he made a way that we can be reunited with him and forgiven of our sin. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to earth as a baby who was fully God and fully man. And I don't fully understand it, but I fully believe it. And he lived a perfect sinless life here on earth. But yet he went to a cross and he died for your sins and he died for my sins. And then three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave so that today we can be forgiven of the sin that separates us from God. And we can be forgiven of our evil ways. That we can go from sinfulness to holiness. That we can go from unrighteousness to righteousness. That we can go from death to life. If we repent of our sins, that means turning from our sins and believing in Jesus and following him the rest of our days. Then we will be saved from the sin in our hearts that separates us from God. Today we know from the Bible that there will be a day of judgment for us all. And on that day, our only hope will be proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus got what he didn't deserve, death on a cross, so that we can get what we don't deserve, his righteousness placed upon us. So that when God looks upon us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for that. And I wonder today, on that day of judgment, when you stand before the God who created you and the God who's perfect and the God who is holy, what will be your defense? Will you say, I've lived a sort of good life? None of us can live a good enough life. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. Would you say, I've earned it, like I've earned this, I've been really wealthy, you know, I've helped out at charities, I've done these things? None of us can earn salvation. Jesus Christ alone is the way to salvation. Our only defense on the day of judgment is saying the blood of Jesus covers me. So don't look at my sinfulness, but look at the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our only hope on judgment day is Christ alone. So the truth is this for all of us. Judgment day is coming for us all. And our only hope is Christ alone.
So church, the truth that we've seen in today through our text and our observations is this. First, let's risk it all for making much of Jesus. Second, let's confess our sins and fix our eyes on Jesus. And third, judgment day is coming. And our only hope is in Christ alone. Our big idea for today is this. God desires that we confess our sin and not conceal it or continue in it. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Believers in the room today, believer of Jesus Christ, let me ask you a couple of questions. First, what is it that you're risking for Jesus today? Does your life reveal that you're risking much to proclaim Jesus as Lord? Or does it reveal a life that proclaims, I am Lord? Let's examine our priorities. And do our lives proclaim that Jesus is Lord? If not, let's make some changes. Let's decide we're going to make much of Jesus with our lives. Another thing, believer, what are some sins that you need to confess today? This altar is open. If you just need to come before your Lord and confess your sins to Him, I'll be down front if you need to come and you need prayer. But let's not be pretenders of perfection today. But let's fight our sin on our knees and fight our battles on our knees and remember that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Confess your sin. Don't conceal it to Him. Maybe you're here today and you've never proclaimed Jesus as Lord. Today, I want you to know that that emptiness that you have in your soul, you can have it satisfied. That that yearning of wanting to know what's more in this life or what is this life all about can be satisfied through Jesus Christ alone. Hear me, you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to earn your way into heaven. You can come just as you are to Jesus Christ and he will accept you and he will save you. In a few moments when we sing, you can come down front and I can help you cry out to God for the first time. Hey God, I believe. God, would you forgive me? And God, I will follow you. And you can have the same salvation on judgment day that I have been talking about today. Whatever it is that you need to do, let's do business with the Lord now. I love you, church, so much. Let's pray.